Uh, we've somehow managed to make it to episode nine with Amos, uh, who will wave uh, right about now. Um, with that, uh, we should ask you guys to, to remember to, you know, hit the thumbs up button, comment, subscribe on all the any and all platforms that you're listening and watching. If you're on Apple Podcasts, we're supposed to ask you to give us five stars because that matters in algorithms, you know, you know how that goes. Um, yeah. Uh, and then if you guys are on LinkedIn, please follow the manufacturing hub with Dave and Vlad page. You guys should be able to see us um, on the, the live stream. Uh, also, we're live on manufacturinghub.live and you can catch all of the old episodes there. Um, again, this is kind of a community show. If you've got some comments, please send them to me. We'd like to, uh, to roll through and talk about them, especially in the beginning. Um, the Open Automation Oil Field Group on Clubhouse has again asked that we, we drop them a note. They meet Fridays at noon mountain time. Um, which is actually the, the time of Amos's body clock. And then if you uh, want, I know Sean Terrell has said that he's got a bunch of clubhouse invites, et cetera, uh, for that. Uh, we are now like week three, four, five into our weekly schedule. So you guys can come check us out Wednesday afternoons or early evenings uh, in whatever time zone that we're at. And uh, with that, uh, we're very excited to welcome Amos Purdy to the to the stream. You want to say hi, Amos? Are you on mute? Well, someone has to do it. Come okay, <laughs> perfect. So, so, so let, let's start that over. And when you're listening on the podcast on the end, uh, this will be the uh, this will be the clean cut. So welcome everyone to episode nine of Manufacturing Hub with Dave and Vlad. Uh, I am your co-host Dave Griffith along with Vladimir Romanov. Uh, today on episode nine, we are continuing our Manufacturing Intelligence series and we are very pleased to welcome Amos Pur Purdy, who is the MI lead at GPA to the show. You wanna try saying hi again, Amos? <laughs> How's it going guys? Thanks for having me on. No, absolutely. Absolutely. No. So, so we're very excited uh, to have you on Amos. Um, I know that you and I have had many hours of a variety of MI conversations um, over the course of the, uh, the last couple of years. And when we started talking about bringing you on, uh, we were discussing what, what basically amounts to someone's manufacturing intelligence journey. And you were saying that you know, MI is so variable depending upon location. And it's all about finding the right place to start. And that almost always continues on into the future. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you really have to justify it from the beginning. And I don't think that anybody can really know where they're going to end up on the journey um, of MI. I mean, from the get-go, trying to justify where you're even trying to go like you can't break down the costs and the benefits from the mm -hmm. beginning um so that that larger piece of knowing how to break that that journey down is so key right now uh especially around data where it's it's so open <laughs> so many different avenues to go no no absolutely now I know it's probably a strange question, but is there normally like a starting point when you're talking to customers that 
you know, you find a lot of people in a very similar position um, in their MI journey? You know, honestly, I would say it's probably hard for a lot of different people because it's someone pushing from a point that, you know, like a process engineer or maybe a middle manager or even the C-level, but it's, it's usually a C-level like we have to get MI. You know, it's a blanket statement that doesn't really define where they're trying to get and what they're trying to, what kind of benefits they're trying to realize from MI. So, you know, yeah, we see it from everybody. I mean, everybody wants it. Everybody wants more transparency from the controls engineer, from the operator, even all the way up to C-level. Um, I usually see, you know, C-level being able to push a lot more around, okay, it's it's time for us to make this, this change, you know, um, and I have the money to do it, but even they don't know what it's going to take or how much money it's going to be. So, I mean, it's even, even if CeeLo is pushing it, it's, we, we have to break it down, you know, slowly. Okay. Let's just back up here. I understand, but what is this really going to take to, to pull off even from the, the operator standpoint? And sometimes it is really just, huge benefits for an operator to get additional information. I mean, sometimes that actually is more beneficial than the 15 reports that the management <laughs> really wants to see. Amos, if I may uh, take us, because I think we can take that in many directions, but I want to take a step back before we dive into the technical topics and kind of maybe allow you to give your background a little bit more because we have a wide range of people listening you know on youtube it's primarily like engineers technicians who are probably working in controls or trying to get in controls and you know mm -hmm. on linkedin it's going to be a also a very wide range of folks listening so i think it's very interesting to maybe figure out uh, your path and i know that you've got a master's in engineering and then did your mba as well before um, you know, going through a couple of different companies. So could you give us maybe a, a summary of, uh, of that path? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say right now and where I want to go is data, you know? So I've been definitely focusing my career on that. Um, when I was in high school, I got the opportunity to go to an HTML class and, from there, I started to learn. I mean, I was I was 12, and I started my first freelance web design, and that's what I did for for many years. Um, but what that did give me the opportunity to do is in college work um, with Gallup WorldPoll doing Flash applications, and I really started to see the the value of that data. I mean, oh man, they have so much good data, you know. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> You know, after that, like I did some other uh, other web applications and that kind of stuff, but I really see, you know, I was, this was back before a lot of user interactions could generate data, but industrial, there's so much good data. I mean, and it's, I got my master's in electrical engineering because I loved the, the, the bits that actually control physical hardware and the real world things. Um, and getting to suck all that data out like that's that's things that are affecting real world things you know all of those little bits and stuff in industrial so um you know going to my master's i helped develop uh industrial controls um 
class and I started working with an oil and gas company to do a lot of that data gathering across, you know, repeaters and long range, um, you know, oil fields and stuff, which was so important for them. I mean, it's someone driving two hours or you put up a couple of different towers and you right. don't have to go out there to <laughs> know how much flow is going on. And that was, it was just, that, that data was so important. So seeing that industrial could generate good data and data that actually can be, you know, actionable, that's really where I took off, you know, and tried to focus. And when going in my MBA, um, that's really kind of where I was, you know, kind of focused my learning or at least tried to focus my learning is how it could go towards, you know, that data to drive those business decisions. So, um, you know, coming out of school, <laughs> having two masters, not everybody wants to pay you what a master's degree will <laughs> right. cost. So, um, yeah, spend some time in an OEM, which was awesome. I mean, from the ground up, you're developing down to the sensors, all of the data connections down to the ground, ground floor and understanding how that all needed to roll up. Um, you know, that was, that was great experience. My next job, um, started, uh, running a MES department for a uh, glass manufacturer and, you know, even more so seeing how that feeds in and, you know, talking with the CFO all the time, because that that's, that's your plant. I mean, that's the things that make or break your business decisions. Um, so that, that ended in 2000 or 2016, um, been working with GPA on data collection for many different systems, many different types of customers since then, and that data integration and, you know, MES, MI, Industry 4.0, there's a lot of buzzwords around what that means to start breaking down the silos. And we do a lot of a lot of different things for a lot of different customers, but that that data connection and and driving that to business decisions is really what we've been focusing on. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds really great. I mean, it's interesting, you know, how like such early kind of maybe experiences led you to where you are today. And I'm very, I guess, I was smiling when you mentioned HTML because that's kind of how I got into some of the web development <laughs> stuff and where I got today, because I think it is the entry point, although I was, I think like 17 when I got exposed to it. But anyways, it's a, it's an interesting um, gateway, so to speak, to the world of the web. But um, I'd be curious to know, I guess, on the MES side, if we can start with that, like manufacturer, since like there's probably more examples with GPA that you've worked with, but there it's like from a, maybe an internal standpoint, right? Like how, um, or like what kind of, projects obviously as much as you can share without infringing on any confidential information where being deployed at the plant like what were they trying to like figure out what was the um i want to say the initiator of you know building an mes team and having like full-time staff on uh you know deploying these systems yeah i mean honestly at the glass plant it really took hold as soon as they had one report that was their hourly report that actually people didn't have to call in and literally fill out a spreadsheet. And that one report was the catalyst for a multi, well, it ended up being a multi-million dollar deployment of what would be, okay, now we want more data. And I would say that's, that's just about how it goes in any, you know, good, you know, any organization and actually to pull off. You know, successful projects. It comes from 
finding that one what that one problem <laughs> that returns so much by fixing. Um, mm. So I mean, it's it's up and down the line for who can actually be beneficial and actually start to drive these things. You know, if a process engineer really starts to take hold of MI and data, they they can definitely <laughs> start to you know, jump ranks because if nothing else, they ex they understand the data that actually can drive to the, the bottom, you know, the business. And, hmm. you know, so it's, it's finding those problems and, you know, in that specific plan, um, you know, it was, a, it was a manager, but it was a manager that was sick of why do I have to spend all day calling around to all these other managers to fill out a spreadsheet, you know, and that's, that's really the beauty of where we're at right now. And the, you know, the, you know, industry 4.0 is we can break down those silos that used to be really hard to do. Right. right. I mean, you almost needed, and to deploy that system, there's a reason that it was multi thousand, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, it's not that cost. It doesn't cost that much anymore. Um, it's just, and especially with more and more people taking hold of, you know, okay, data can actually be very beneficial and breaking down those silos, silos can be very beneficial to the larger business and finding those little use cases. I mean, anybody can really be a, a hero in that aspect, honestly, but there's, there's, there's so much low hanging fruit right now in that, in that data aspect. I, I think that's I think a really good point. I'm sorry, Vlad, but, but I feel like Amos's point of anyone can be a hero, which may or may not be, have been the thing that, uh, that you also kind of perked up on is, is I think something that, uh, that I think everyone listening to this will, uh, will be interested in. Uh, you had talked about how anyone, if they're interested to understand the data can like solve problems and are able to kind of level up potentially within an organization if they're willing to solve those problems. Can, can you extrapolate that on that a little bit more, Amos, or potentially talk about your experience and, and things that you've seen and people that have taken hold of the, the MI or data side? Yeah, I mean, I would say our most successful projects have been the people that see the value in a very specific part of their process or, you know, how their process feeds into a larger process, you know, um, and, once they really understand the true benefit to the business, uh, our most successful process, projects have been people that take a hold of that idea and know it from front to back. It's, I mean, it's the process engineers a lot of times that know how to improve their process. Um, but as soon as they start to know how that drives the business decisions, like they, they can be some of the best ones. And some of the best projects have been the process engineers in the end because C-level can push it but it's the implementation is the deployment. You need those champions on the floor to drive that process home and making sure you're getting good data, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And understanding what it takes to get good data. Sometimes it's trying to take things away from the operator so it's more understandable or understanding the user flow or something. Those, the process engineers that truly can grab a hold of the C-level um, initiatives, I mean, those, those are the best, best, best parts. And you definitely see the best return from those guys. Yeah, I wanted to um, ask, I guess, a question around that topic as well, because as, um, as you've mentioned, I guess there's two kind of entry points 
for innovation within a company, right? It could be pushed down by C-level who are looking to, or I guess they're doing some analysis on business performance, usually on the financial side. And they're seeing that maybe they're not keeping up with the industry or there's other competitors that are being digitally transformed. And so they're looking to push down these, these initiatives. And on the other side, as you said, you maybe have a, a team of process engineers, operators that are trying to, so to speak, like pitch their initiatives to upper management so that they could um, you know, get those funds from C-level in order to implement those solutions. But I guess, I think in your perspective, if I understand that correctly, there is no kind of like one or the other. It really needs to involve everybody in like a cross-functional uh, maybe discussion and then figure out like who's really responsible for what before even proceeding, right? That shouldn't be like one way or the other. I mean, I, I would say that you see the best results when everybody's on board um and you can definitely find little projects here and there that people can be heroes in their own department right <laughs> um and if nothing else like from the sea level i see a lot of the times it's just like i don't want to concern the process engineer all i need them to tell me is this one little thing and then i'll take it from there. Mm -hmm. so there can be very specific things but i mean breaking down all of those data silos and giving the operators more information or knowing more information every time that you need to go do something uh, benefits everybody. But that without knowing the process and how it feeds down, like that sea level, a lot of times all they really do need is that count that's accurate. <laughs> you know, it can be something so simple. Um, and so, you know, individual people can definitely have, you know, different avenues to get what they need to help the business but that's not where the true epoch in you know industrial 4.0 is going to take us i mean people that organizations that only have a few people that really take a hold of it i mean they're going to fall behind eventually if they aren't already behind yeah uh, be, i guess uh dave unless you have a different question i want to elaborate on that even more I'm, i'd be curious what you think is a good maybe um, initiative or incentive for, you know, certain process engineers to be putting out such ideas, right? Because I think a lot of times the opposite could also be true where you've got a, a facility where, you know, there's just so much putting out the fire activity, so to speak, that the engineers just don't have the time or don't have the, maybe the initiative to, or reward necessary to maybe put up some of these ideas that could uh, result in very beneficial, you know, business opportunities. You're glowing, Dave. <laughs> Dave has disconnected. I guess it, it could be a question to, uh, to to both of you. What uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, like. Because again, I've seen very little on, um, like I said, on the compensation or rewards, except, you know, what you've mentioned, potentially, if you take on that may be part of the business and you do get that promotion opportunity. But other than those, I feel like very um, like narrow specific cases, I haven't seen a lot of um, sort of structures that kind of help engineers bring up those ideas. Yeah, I would. Yeah. That's definitely a struggle. I mean, I, I see that from a lot of process, process engineers because they have a good idea and they do hit a brick wall. Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I don't know if there is a good <laughs> uh, fix for that. Uh, if, if nothing else, you know that a change is happening. I mean, and there's plenty of justifications around the benefits that they bring. You know, uh, there's a lot of ways to get people's ear and it might not be, hey, I want to change a whole hardware thing because I'll get better results. Well, that that means, oh, a ton of money and, you know, development and trying to realign systems. But what it could mean is, hey, you know what, maybe we decrease scrap or we get better monitoring or you rephrase it in a way that actually, okay, wait, wait, that means business benefit, you know. Um, right. And a lot of process engineers don't want to think about that piece of it but i mean that's that's the best justification is when you can drive it to the bottom line and, yeah, no and, I, I definitely you know, huh? and and if nothing else you know time saved honestly you know a lot of the process engineers might not be able to even evaluate up you know if if one product saved every hour is going to justify a project that takes twenty thousand dollars or something um but what it how they can justify it is, hey, if I don't have to do this for a week every month, <laughs> um, think about how much that saves. And if right. you, you know, a lot of times it is down to, you know, time saved even on their part. And and especially as we're going forward, we're going to find more and more. And you know, controls engineers are high, high, high in demand. Um, and it's only even getting tighter in the resource pool. Um, so. You know, that that piece of it is save my time so I can benefit you where, you, you know, other places, you know, not don't make me type in <laughs> everything yeah. to an Excel. No, that that definitely makes sense, because I think it's a much more measurable metric, I guess, for for the engineers, but just like everyone in general. So it's easier to find those low hanging fruit. And I guess once you implement a certain portion of data, that's where you can quantify like you were mentioning in your example, if there's like one bad product an hour or whatever, like what does that really, um, you know, quantify to in terms of business dollars and is it worth uh, going after or not, right? Um, but I want to I want to go back on the subject of data quality. Uh, you've mentioned it at the beginning. I'm curious, you know, like what has your experience been? And we talked uh, about this with Dave for quite a bit of time, but I think you know, like you having worked in a lot of these like MES applications, you've probably seen all sorts of different things done. And so what are maybe, how to say it, like the issues that you see at customer sites that are gathering just some data or no data at all? And then, you know, what can we do to make it better? <laughs> maybe a very kind of vague question at first, but what are the problems, I guess, to get started? Yeah, I mean, and when you're talking about data quality, I just want to clarify, it's not, am I communicating with the PLC or not, which is a portion of data quality, but a lot of times it's usually data quality around operator entry. Um, if they even know how to enter it or are they getting it at the right time? You know, there's so many contextualization, I mean, around that operator or that input, that value um, past just in my community with the PLC. So I do want to mention that. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think we can talk a little bit about both. Uh, I'd be more like curious about the like PLC side because I think there's like fairly 
known issues around like manual data entry and for sure there's like good solutions to that but i'm curious about you know maybe your perspective on um like again there's different protocols being discussed right now how to pull data like at what intervals um you know what makes sense in different operations use cases like i'm, I'm just curious in general what you saw maybe uh, end users do that was just not making sense at all and then like I'm curious about like the dynamic in general, because again, I've, I've had my perspective because I've like installed data solutions, but I'm curious what you have seen and like what kind of problems maybe arose and how um, you or your team were able to figure out some solutions. Well, I would say with industry 4.0, like edge systems are getting really, really cheap. Um, yep. And just like your computer, you know, back in the day you had maybe a cache you had your hard drive and your processor. And now you have sometimes four levels of caches in your hardware um, mm -hmm. for different access levels and read and write times and that kind of stuff. Edge, I mean, industry 4.0 with the ability to deploy things close to the edge and be that store and forward. Usually the larger systems, especially the corporate side becomes a uh, go and grab that data when you can get it. Um, but a lot of those buffers in between, you know, mm -hmm. pass it up as it's available. Um, so that store and forward ability, but as close as you can get it, um, you know, uh, you know, definitely with MQTT goes a long ways to at least kind of lining up some of that stuff straight OPC and building in some of the, the back end to take into account some of the data quality stuff of connecting or not connecting. You just try to get it as close as you can. Um, if nothing else, I would say that alleviates a lot of security concerns down the way. If you have a system that you know you can lock down close to the data source, like an, like an industrial PC or something. Um, once you lock that down or you get it into a protocol that's, you know, IT is good with and stuff, honestly, you can pass the data, data around a lot easier than just keeping it open on the OT network. And it gives you a lot of those other features like storing forward and all that kind of stuff. Um, you just, you end up, you end up having <laughs> that localized, more localized source. Um, does that make sense? I mean, what, what is your, what is your experience? Uh, well, I guess like you've mentioned a couple of things that I've kind of smile at because I've seen those battles in uh, many factories. I guess IT versus OT networks have been uh, always a major challenge, right? Because I think IT doesn't fully understand automation. And so the moment that you open up a connection that has a firewall to a to some extent unmonitored, but at the same time, fairly obsolete from a hardware standpoint network, right? Because again, like you have PLCs and HMIs running. I mean, we've seen Windows 95 on some of the VersaView terminals. And then as soon as you drop them on the IT network, then, um, you know, there's a whole kind of array of questions that uh, starts coming up. But besides that, I think I've also seen uh, many, you know, Fortune 500 companies just collecting data on a very like set interval um, that would be anywhere from, you know, just a couple of minutes 
and maybe down to you know 100 to 200 milliseconds and in both cases i guess like one or the other was very difficult to work with right because on one side if you collect um i know for example like ge um prophecy historian uh was set to collect data one of the facilities like every five minutes and so as a controls engineer at the time it was very difficult to troubleshoot any kind of problems right like you're, you come in and you're told some kind of a servo faulted out it's been you know over torqued and it happened like three times last night we need a fix because it's causing us downtime and then you look at the data and it's obviously worthless right like at that point like it, you're not going to detect anything um, even if you're extremely lucky, I, I think it's probably like winning the lottery, right? Because it happens in milliseconds and it's captured every five, five minutes. So anyways, and then on the opposite side, you just create these massive uh, SQL databases from what I saw. And you just keep like such like big backups that are like so slow on executing queries that they just become unaccessible as well, right? And you start backing up after like 10 minutes and then it becomes like a it becomes very difficult to pull anything out and there's just so much noise that it requires a lot of like computing power to even like extract anything meaningful out of, uh, out of all that like unstructured data, so to speak. But um, I don't know. I, I honestly, you know, I'm still thinking myself like what the best kind of approach is. I think um, MQTT plays an interesting um, like they have an interesting solution, but I think there's tools like we spoke to uh, Jim and the way he pulls data with OSI Pi, and you know it's very deterministic. It's based on change, so I think that's the way to go. But at the same time, that becomes also very difficult from an integration standpoint, right? Because you need, as we talked uh, about, like the process engineers and then controls engineers to really know like what kind of data they're pulling. So I'm becoming more and more curious to see if there's a faster way to kind of set these systems up, right? To be able to pull data and I guess like in a ordered fashion, but at the same time, not have to go look at each like sensor and kind of map it to the, to where it needs to go and like actually understand that signal. Cause that's at least like what I've been uh, doing for a number of years myself. So it, it's tedious and very time consuming, right? Yeah, and to uh, to jump in with that, Vlad, I mean, on, on the IT side, we have had for many years, you know, data lakes and pools, right? A place that all of the data goes. And I think that as you go down and you're building data solutions, you want to find a way to funnel everything that you're building into one place. And, you know, generally on the OT side, that's some sort of process historian, uh, similar to what we talked about last week. And so you've got the process historian, you've got the tags in the historian, and then you can easily pull from those tags um, and have that known good pool. And I think one of the biggest issues, and I know something Amos and I have talked about extensively, is how do you know that pool of data is good and how do you standardize all of those? So you, instead of just, you know, one process historian doing it or one process engineer doing it at a single facility, how can you do it across a hundred facilities or a thousand facilities? You know, and, you know, with all of that, I think that, you know, each plant or if you break it down to the very bottom, down to the sensors and stuff, you know, getting that, okay, I need to take a value every second or five minutes 
like that can definitely be a corporate decision, but it, it, you, you need to have as much information as you need to be able to troubleshoot and keep your machine running. Right. So those can be set, but what, what usually ends up happening is you've got like a couple of different layers, right? The data, the main data generation, your sensors and stuff. I mean, you can get those in millisecond time and you can store those in millisecond time, but how important is your millisecond time sensor important to, is the machine running? Well, you don't need to really know. And I think that you were touching on that, Vlad, like, you know, alert on uh, value change kind of thing where it's, uh, yeah. it, it kind of feeds up. Um, and I think that's kind of where we're going with a lot of different stuff. I mean, MQTT with the publish subscribe, it only, you know, you only send an update to a topic and it only, you know, tells other people about the update to that topic when it gets an update, right? So at least you can kind of, you know, start to get that kind of level. But, you know, you start out with that data level and you need that contextualization to create information, right? So is the machine running, you know, is this is this weight at 100? The, the next level really is like the knowledge. And when you start talking about like a historian being hard to query and stuff, usually what we see is there's not enough contextualization or aggregation or, you know, different ways to kind of like interpret that, that data to an information. And then from that information is the machine running is, you know, what's the weight, you know, what's the content, you know, moisture content or something, all of that information leads up into knowledge where you can actually make decisions. Is the machine down? Am I making good product to this kind of thing, you know? And, and I think, you know, those multiple layers, like we were talking about the multiple layers of storing forward, having that can increase contextualization every time it kind of passes up means that you might, you might only need two or three rec records at the very top at the business level where you have the wisdom to create, you know, you actually make your business decision, right? Like you only have the information that actually is beneficial to you. And Honestly, that's, you know, usually minuscule, like a whole day's <laughs> production might be two records. And as sad as that might be, there will be a lot more records if it's going bad. So you want only two records, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that increased contextualization and categorization and understanding of what's actually important on the next thing up and what the data needs to be at the different levels is, is one of those. It's hard to maintain, but it definitely breaks up what the process engineer needs to tell the manager, engineering manager needs to tell, you know, the plant manager, or the operations manager and the operations manager needs to tell, you know, the CEO. And it's what we do anyways in all of our reports. <laughs> it's just finally get it, you know, it's getting to that data layer where we can actually see machine statuses. Yeah. Now that's a good perspective. I I'm wondering if you ever, ran into the challenge, I guess, with the the currently pushed unified namespace, right? Where you get this very large repository of data that everybody can sort of like come in and grab whatever they need. Um, I guess I haven't encountered it yet, but what I've seen in, you know, in the field when it comes to, let's say a SQL database is that whoever deploys the solution typically owns it and is extremely like, I guess the word would be possessive, 
you know, of that data because you obviously don't want to grant just anybody access to what you've developed. And I think there's there's maybe, you know, financial reasons because you could have a third party piggybacking on all the work that you did, you know, contextualizing this data and then obviously underbidding some of the projects because they didn't have to do that piece. But I guess like, what are your thoughts on, you know, moving forward? Do you think it's going to be more open between, uh, let's say systems integrators and people at the plant level uh, that would, you know, share this data more openly? Or do you still see these maybe closed silos where people develop their own contextualized set of data and they kind of make it into a black box that only they can access and obviously like draw reports from and then present it to management, but ultimately not really share it with, uh, you know, third parties, unless there's like really a, a business case made for it. I mean, I would say a lot of people have justified their job by holding onto the data and the streams, um, mm -hmm. but it's not going to be around for long. I think everybody that I've ever talked about has their own different way of calculating OE and everybody wants all of that, that control. Um, and I think that's only coming about even more so with like no code kind of flows and that kind of stuff. You know, um, I don't think that I know industrial automation can be very specific with the protocols and ways of things that they connect. I don't think that will always be the case. And the, you know, the, the web technologies out there and stuff, they, they, they are, and you know, they will, and they are right now coming into the industrial space. Um, so do you think that you can develop one thing and control a whole process <laughs> in two, three years, like good luck holding on to that. It's going to be a hard fight. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, uh, like I said, it's something I've encountered because you can obviously, like I said, you can open it up to whoever, but it becomes like challenging because there's, there's different layers of understanding. I think of some of that implementation too, right? Cause you've got your, like, you want to say like plant knowledgeable people like your mm -hmm. controls engineers systems engineers uh it could be process engineers whatever and then you've got maybe the data science that understands a lot more of the statistics and analytics and kind of like we said like mi portion of it but doesn't have full understanding of how like that data came to be and i think there's maybe mm -hmm. some disconnect and some concern on how you know that like meshing so to speak comes into play uh, and of course, there are some like real dangers in how you like play with those databases. I think in MQTT a little bit so if you give the right permissions, but certainly in SQL, right, you can very easily uh, either lose data or create like unnecessary fields or what have you. So, it, I mean, it is a concern. I'm just curious what you your thoughts mm -hmm. are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, Dave, did you have something there? Yeah, no, no. I, I was going to say, I, I think that uh, you both brought up a good point. I think in the future that the data is going to have to belong to the enterprise and we cannot let outside sources own enterprise data. Um, if large companies haven't come to that conclusion, I, I'm sure that they will soon for all of the reasons that, uh, that we've talked about. I would also say that, you know, th there will certainly need to be some sharing of non-proprietary data and, if it gets to that point, um, I would imagine most large companies probably aren't doing it in a SQL database. I'm, I would imagine they're doing it in some sort of like time series database. And I would say that if you're doing it, well, 
Okay. If they are, or should they, I, I suppose that that's a different question, Vlad. Um, but I would say that there is certainly the opportunity to mirror those databases so that if you're worried about someone coming in and, and screwing with the data, especially in like the pharma industry, I have seen, you know, databases mirrored so that there's one data that we know is the original and cannot be screwed with. And if the FDA or someone comes back, we can show them this known good database and then we can mirror it. We can do whatever we want from the mirrored database and we don't have to go through all of the uh, FDA or other uh, regulations in order to uh, approve changes of what we're going to do with these. So I would imagine that we're going to see more of that moving forward if there is the worry in the uh, in the data space on the process side. Yeah, that makes sense. So we actually have a question for you, Amos. Uh, I know we've danced around hardware and devices. So Sandro is uh, is talking about how Industry 4.0 is a huge buzzword. Uh, I'm sure. So anyone listening, Amos is currently laughing because we've talked about that already. Uh, but Sandro would like to know, from your point of view, what can device vendors bring to the table to make things easier for people making these implementations? Uh, what should we get better at? And then uh, for your information, Sandro is a project manager at Festo. Uh, always in the chat. Good guy. And so he, he wants to know from the vendor side, what can they do to make uh, products that are better? Hmm. I mean, following a lot of the standard protocols that a lot of people are doing right now definitely makes a lot of that easier to integrate. I think that some of the biggest things for individual components is just being available, right? Like being able to network, uh, everything's going on a network. Um, the other thing about that's security i mean is definitely one of the biggest things that gets pushed down so um it might not necessarily be the biggest thing for a individual component but as for like um i know festa does like you know whole blocks you know whole output blocks and you know and a lot of different stuff but i mean when you're when you've got that entry point into that whole system that you're that you're controlling you know giving some extra access protocols, you know, different ones, but security is going to be such a, a large topic um, to get on the larger network. Um, and, and that's especially if they start connecting uh, a lot of stuff to the outside or opening up more IT or IT access to a lot of these things. Um, past that, you know, configuration of, of large amounts of devices, man, that could be so much easier, but when you know web well, web server on something like you know it's nice for configuration and stuff but it's getting in into the other systems you know it's it's creating those udps or having that good documentation of where to actually pull it and how to actually pull it and making it easy to go pull like that goes so far um to just integrating it to the rest of it a lot of times you know if it, one little thing happens on or one little your device is being deployed, but it's the black sheep because it doesn't communicate. Mm -hmm. They'll rip and replace all of it. I mean, they're looking, they're looking at five years down the road anymore. They're not looking at, can this just work? You know, they need to be able to keep it in the system. Yeah. 
I think if I may throw in my two cents, you made a good point, but maybe I can expand a little bit. It's the documentation. I think like for me, that's really key number one, right? Because there's so many devices out there and especially when you're trying to integrate between two different vendors and you pull out the manual that links to like another like table or let's say like an AOI or, um, you know, like an implementation. And then it's just like not there because the version has changed or your device is not the same as the one described in the manual. Like, I think that's the, the biggest challenge, right? Like trying at that stage, you're trying to call people, you're trying to uh, see if there's anything else available online, but the documentation I think really needs to be like on point. And I think some vendors have done a better job than others, but there's certainly a lot of room for improvement on all um, I think areas, right? And there's truly no like plug and play device. And so it's recognizing that fact and like trying to maybe cover as many bases as possible um, from from their standpoint and different, again, like use cases, different devices on the other side. So that's super important. We got a, another question, Dave. I don't know if you saw that one, but I think it's very relevant to what we've been talking about. So Seth says, the hardest part for me is figuring out what data I need to make meaningful improvements or rather how to make all this data actually mean something. Um, and I think, you know, we can definitely expand on that, but like, you know, what are maybe, let's say from what you saw, uh, the initial steps when you come into a facility, right? Like when there's maybe very little data or maybe very, uh, there's some automation, let's say the controllers are on the network and you get that kind of question, like what can we look at first or what's the, like what's the lowest hanging fruit where we can utilize your services or your expertise to kind of achieve some early on business uh, objectives maybe. Was that for me or Dave? I think it's for you, Amos. Dave was just like nodding. The... <laughs> He's like nodding in approval. I was hoping Dave. <laughs> no, uh... <laughs> no um, honestly, I would say as someone coming into a plant, um, I would say the, the people that use the machines every day, the operators, people, people disregard them a lot of the times, but you go to any area and just stand around there and you tell them that you're there to help out, uh, they will tell you so many good <laughs> ideas about how to, you know, help out the process. And then, you know, the next step would be just evaluating, okay, well, say saving this person or this area, you know, 10 minutes every hour, does that really even make sense? You know, like, does that really even matter for the large thing? But I mean, the operators, oh, I love being around operators. They tell me so much better information than most people. <laughs> I mean, because if nothing else, they're using it every day. They know the data that it produces. I mean, maybe not the data in the end, but they, they know what the machine does. I mean, the process engineers know how it feeds into the larger thing, but they know the problems. Like sometimes it's like move this button or, you know, change the text on it. And then all of my problems are solved. You know, right. they'll, they'll start giving you good data and people will start, you know, getting mad at them and stuff. So. <laughs> I think people underestimate, you know, the importance your operators play in this whole maybe uh, infrastructure of data, right? Because we always think like, oh, it's going to be the engineers who pull in the data. But ultimately, I think a lot of these use cases come from the bottom up. And maybe, again, just from my experience, like management doesn't spend enough time 
talking to those people for, you know, diverse reasons, but I think they could be a, a wealth of information, like you said. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say probably some of the best returns have been when not only do you have a good process engineer, but you have the operators who know it's going to help them out and they want to do it too, you know, like everybody's on board from the get-go. Um, and yeah, those, those, those yield benefits real quick. Yeah. What about, um, so let's expand on that a little bit because I think that's a very kind of good starting point for data collection in general, right? So once you've come into a site and you've set up some kind of a system, maybe that tracks data or you already have a means to maybe collect a whole bunch of data, how do you like assemble a team that will be able to identify? And again, I, I'm making it vague, I guess, specifically, so you can draw on like, you know, different experiences, but how do you like assemble a team? Because again, like digital transformation, I think it's a continuous process, right? Like some people have the maybe misconception that it's like we set something up in place and it's collecting data, but I think it's more about the long-term initiatives that will take place because of the data you're collecting and that you will be collecting more of in the future. And so how do you like assemble the team that will go back and like lead some of these initiatives? And we talked about like process engineers, but maybe like more specifically, is there any recommendations that you see coming back like time and time again that are, you know, low hanging fruit in certain facilities? And this could be, again, like maybe looking at your OE, this could be looking at your, I don't know, like again, coming back to, like mean time to repair, like what, like what could be like some cool or interesting indicators that are like easier to target, I guess, at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, looking at the basic OE calculations, like quality, quality gives you so much good information because at the very end, they're the ones that's going to um, say yes or no, you know? So mm -hmm. the, you know, those are some good indicators. Um, you know, time saved, you know, cycle time, part of the OE, you know, like yeah. that's time saved with the operators. Um, you know, keeping machine up and running, you know, keeping the availability and everything, like you said, mean time between failure. That's more of a maintenance thing. So you're talking to the people on the floor, the process engineers, the operators for cycle time. You're talking to the quality for Am I getting good products? And you're talking to maintenance, like how do I actually keep this thing running <laughs> at this good right. quality and uh, with the, at this cycle time? So, yeah, I mean, they, they definitely all play into it. And, you know, I think I mentioned two departments that a lot of people don't really think of, you know, <laughs> like uh, maintenance and operators. Like most people don't usually want to even touch those two things, but they do yield a ton of benefit. <laughs> Yeah, maintenance. It's a, it's an interesting world. I think we haven't talked with Dave about that, but yeah, it's a an interesting place to be. I think there's a lot of, um, again, drawing from my own experience, budget cuts in that department specifically each and every year. And um, there's, I think, a lot of opportunity if you just talk to them because again, like they deal with the uh, with the floor problems. I think twenty four seven. And so there's a lot of opportunities um, from that standpoint, but quality too, like, I guess uh, to draw like on Seth's, Seth's question, you can very easily just by including like a counter of uh, the number of rejects, whether it is, you know, on a per case or per product basis, or whether it's maybe a flow, right. That could be in pounds per whatever hour lost. And you can 
I would say like maybe not, it's not a trivial calculation, but it's still fairly easy to quantify, you know, how many dollars you're losing per hour or per day or per shift um, and see if there's a worthwhile further investigation, right? And I think like, I'd like to get your perspective, maybe like once you get that information, you can drill down further and see what might be like the root cause, for example, of those, uh, of those challenges, right? Or the rejects or the what have you. Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, I think with the quality stuff, sometimes the biggest aha moments come down to specific products. You know, you know, everybody knows they have that one product that doesn't run right. And, and chasing down those things usually goes so far. Um, so it's kind of that red herring out there that maybe there's a bigger problem in the process, but there's always this one that just can't quite get cut right. Um, and, you know, that's part of that contextualization of, okay, yes, we've gotten a ton of scrap, but break it down a little bit. Is it a, is a product that's giving us a whole bunch of scrap or a specific part of the line and really starting to go down to, you know, drill, drill down to those specific areas instead of trying to you know, do the larger thing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Definitely makes sense. Dave, I don't know if you saw that question because I think you're paying attention to it. But uh, Seth asked the follow-up. He said, on OE, what about scenarios where cycle times vary widely and quality data is not available until sometime later in a process mm -hmm. or even the next day? I think that's a very interesting point, right? Amos, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that correlation of past data and that real-time feeding back in. Um, honest, I mean, and yeah, that's that's you you will probably have to re-correlate data, um, you know, to really start to dig into some of those those issues a little bit more. Um, yeah, quali quality not being able to feed back in, and especially only a small percentage that doesn't give you a good idea of that. So you've broken down two of the three pillars of, <laughs> of you know, the OE calculation, cycle time varies, which, well, then you, I, then you really have to have that good data around that. I would say on the cycle time, the, the cycle time varying with the product doesn't matter as much as, as long as we know what the cycle time should be. It's a slightly more compu complicated math question, but like that is certainly something we can do. And then read the QC, it, we may not be able to necessarily have real-time OEE, um, with that, but there are certainly lots of places that do some amount of QC in process that gets fed into the OEE, but I have very rarely, if ever seen anyone kind of feedback in the next day's rejects into OEE. So like you, you can certainly play with OEE, what that looks like on that side. I would say mostly if we can institute some sort of, you know, assume cycle time per um, item that we're running through the line. And then the question would very much become, what does quality control look like? If quality control doesn't look good at the end of the day, then we should probably start looking at instituting some amount of in-process QC. And then from that point, you know, even if it's just spot checks, we can run the spot checks into the OEE. And then while we're doing that, we can also make sure that it's good. And if we're running a batch of bad product, we can immediately stop and figure out what's going on, which is the reason why we run in process QC to begin with. Yeah. 
I guess my thought based on his comment would be to understand, first of all, why is there such a variation on the cycle times, right? Is this between different products or is this really an in-process variation that's kind of built in? And if, if that's the case, that it's like, I would try and figure out the root cause of that variation, right? If, it, if it's causing you uh, issues with your product quality and just, I don't know, it, it's, I think like there's missing information in maybe uh, in this question that could reveal some more um, like different paths to follow. Like, like as an aside, I have run OEE for like a mixed model line. So they've got, you know, five or 10 different things that they're all running on the same line. And that varies based upon demand. It also varies based upon what products they have in inventory to be able to make. And so they make, may make three of one thing, then they make, may make 10 of the next thing, then they may make 30 of the third thing. And you're going to have a variety of different things. And depending upon the stations, most of the time, those stations are going to have some amount of manual processes. And depending upon the manual process, processes, that's going to vary the cycle. It, it becomes a much more complicated math problem uh, when you're doing OEE. But, but OEE, as I've said before, and I'll stay again, is basically just math. We can figure out right. a way, as, as long as you understand the process, you can figure out a way to correlate that math. And if you don't have a lot of known good data in the process at the moment, pulling from machines, as Amos mentioned in the beginning, we can have operator inputs into those stations. We can do it as easily as like putting iPads or something there to be able to have operator inputs um, into the stations. And then we can pull that to calculate OEE. Um, and I guess two final thoughts. I'll reach out to Seth. Seth, if you're still listening, I'll reach out and we, we can have a conversation or we can invite these guys to have a conversation. Um, if it would be, if it would be helpful for you, uh, as one. And then the second thing is building a baseline to start to measure anything as OEE is better than not. And, the reason you start OEE is to understand where you are. You can change the math and the calculations as you go and add more data and sensors, but you need to start to build a baseline before you really know what your problems are, other than the fact that, you know, a couple of the issues that you have currently mentioned, Seth, um, are, are, are probably going to be some low-hanging fruit that you want to take a look at um, almost immediately when you start calculating OEE. You could be the hero. You could be the hero, Seth. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think like it's a it's a very interesting like topic, and I think we can for sure have like another episode and discuss kind of like the process variations, like because that's very interesting. And I think again, looking at this from a very high level, I think people don't always recognize you know the complexity of running a different process and how non like copy paste some of these like software tools are. But I think it's important to understand. Like, again, if there is variation of product, variation of like crew size, then I think you need to adapt your, like we talked about, like edge devices to send like the data accordingly, right? Because you can, again, even in the process that Dave had mentioned, you can probably tag like, well, we made like three of these widgets because mm -hmm. something does tell it to make those widgets then send that like data here, right? And then like when a different widget is made, like there's a second bucket and you kind of like split it up before you make a conclusion on what your quality metrics are because if you put everything in one basket and of course then you you're not um, any further along if you just know that you've rejected some widgets for a certain percentage of time right because you still need to determine uh what was the impact on the process on like a specific thing but yeah there's 
a lot of uh, very interesting discussions on the process side too. Amos, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, and you know, I would say OEE and KPIs, and there's a lot of different words for them. They need to be like Dave was saying. They're just, they're a benchmark. They're they're a beginning spot. Like we started this episode off about talking about the MI journey. Like that's just a metric to start to help you evaluate. And there's a lot of resources to break down OEE or different things you can go about with OEE, you know, but KPIs and all that kind of stuff, they're metrics. Develop those metrics, start to track them, start to at least figure out if they're benefiting you. Um, benefiting you in, you know, hunting down the root cause, you know, and develop stupid metrics if you need to, if they actually benefit you because they benefit you. That's really the journey where we're going with all this stuff. Yeah, I think think, that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that that's beautiful. Uh, I thank you, Amos. So we we are getting close to to running out of time, as as we always do. And as I promise every single guest who we talk to, that uh, there will be absolutely no issue filling the hour, mostly because of the great questions that we get in the comments. But Amos, uh, I want to make sure to give you the ability to plug what you and the MI team are doing at GPA. You know, what do you guys do? What sort of clients should reach out to you if they need help? Honestly, you know, we're vendor agnostic. We try to work with all of our customers. Um, maybe GPA doesn't want me to say this, but I try to find the best, <laughs> the best route for people to, you know, achieve what they're wanting to do. The, the MI journey is, is long. It's not always, I need you to buy a whole bunch of software and a bunch of time. It's get started and try to focus on that. You know, so at you know, at GPA, when you, when you come and talk to me, if you put me on a meeting, like that's, that's the first thing, you know, we're, we're really trying to start the journey. We're really trying to help you get started and and move forward with that beginning piece and see real value quickly, you know, not just, you know what, just, just embed us in, in two years. Hope we did, did you good, (laughs) did you some good stuff? (laughs) You'll get what you get, but no, no. No, I mean that whole that whole way through. I mean, uh, honestly, it's 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 a fun journey, and there's so many technologies out there. I would say, you know, no matter which side, if it's C level or process engineers or even an operator, there's so many different avenues to really start attacking this, and you know, um, be the be the be the person, be the hero for for your area. So for sure, I'd love to help you guys out. Just let me know. Amos, really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. As Dave mentioned, we always have a lot more questions and like, I'm very happy that, you know, we got to discuss some of these topics with you. I'm sure we could probably spend another couple of hours doing so, but we want to be respectful of your time as well as, you know, some of the viewers, but really appreciate it. It's it. There's a lot of really cool insights. So thanks again. Thanks, Brad. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. Absolutely. And you guys should be able to catch uh, Vlad, myself, and especially Amos. Uh, Contact information uh, down in the comments. Um, I know you can find Amos on LinkedIn. Besides that, he's kind of hard to find on the the internet on non-phishing forums. But if you guys uh, reach out to either Vlad or I, we can connect you to uh, to Amos directly via email or anything like that. Uh, I don't want to give out Amos's email um, otherwise. But uh, but no, we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you guys all. Anyone else have any closing comments before we, we say goodbye to everyone for this week? 
No, thank All you guys for man. having me on. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you, everyone. Uh, have a good rest of the day and we will see Thank you guys everyone. next week uh, for the next manufacturing happy hour or manufacturing hub uh, with Dave and Vlad. Bye-bye. <laughs>